then I thought to myself, like, why are we looking for balance? Like, it's nowhere good. Um, the only place I could ever find balance was like on a magazine cover. So I started uh, just losing that word. I'm not looking for balance in my life, but I am looking for rhythms. I am looking for healthy rhythms. I am looking for God's invitation. I am looking to say yes to Him. Uh, and I am looking to grow in my capacity to say yes to Him. Hey everyone, it's Shayla here, and I want to welcome you to our second episode of Leadership Conversations with Nikki Gumbel. Today's conversation is between Nikki and Danielle Strickland. Danielle is likely no stranger to you. She's a justice advocate, a communicator, and an incredibly compelling leader and visionary from Toronto, Canada. She's the pioneer of multiple organizations and movements, all of which will be touched on in this conversation. Today, you'll hear Nikki and Danielle talk about her conversion story in prison, why she started anti-sex traffic initiatives, the empowerment of female leaders, how she handles exhaustion, and so much more. Well, I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation as much as I did. Here's Nikki and Danielle. I am here with Danielle Strickland, and she is so many things. I've really, really interviewed someone who is so many things. She's a spiritual leader and justice advocate, communicator, peacemaker, church planter, global uh, anti-trafficker. She's written numerous books, uh, last one being Better Together, started a number of organizations, Brave Global, Amplified Peace, Women's Speakers Collective, and Infinitum, which is a, a spiritual practice uh, to help us all to be get closer to Jesus. Oh, by the way, and also is on the board of Alpha in Canada, uh, which we're, for which we are extremely grateful. Um, um, Daniel, your story is uh, amazing, and um, I love, I love the story about your parents. Uh, you know, both of your parents. Just say a little bit about that because it's so amazing. Yeah, this kind of incredible intervention by God uh, through people that are willing to to get involved. Right. So just two Salvation Army officers in different communities uh, looking for kids who are excluded and lost. Both my parents were orphaned as children and in really, you know, sort of less than opportune homes. Yeah. And the Salvation Army knocked Your on their father, doors. Is that right? Your father was illegally sold? Yeah, he was. He found a receipt for his purchase years after his uh, I don't know what do you call that foster mom, I suppose, mm -hmm. who obviously struggled with a lot of mental health issues. And uh, yeah, for 50 bucks, he was oh, bought. And, uh, yeah. And so the Salvation Army found him, you know, like just people of God who were looking for the marginalized, the excluded, who were going out of their way to get in the way is usually how I like to say that um, to say to folks that don't normally get invited. Hey, we want you to come. And both of them found home, each other <laughs> and a brand new life together. And so that's kind of where I where I come from. I, th I think that your parents sound so amazing. Um, and I love the fact that they always supported the underdog. Is that right? Yeah. So that was one of my favorite, you know, people often will ask me, you know, how did you get into kind of justice work or working with folks who are marginalized? And I just didn't, I don't think I ever realized it was an option. You know, I thought that's just what we did. And uh, so hockey night in Canada, beloved night in Canada, where everybody roots for their team. And of course, when I would come down and see my dad watching the game, I'd say, who are we cheering for tonight? 
And he would always tell me the team that was the underdog because we were always on the side of the underdog and, and remain that way. I absolutely love that story. Now, Daniel, I think I found out something about you that I didn't know before. It says here, <laughs> in prison at the age of 17. Now, were you visiting the prison or were you in prison? What, how, what's that about? Yeah, so this is this, uh, you know, this is this tricky, oppressive cycles, right, that happen. But uh, I, I experienced a fair bit of sexual abuse as a child and some painful situations. And so began to kind of believe what I would call the lie of the enemy, which is that rebellion was freedom. Mm. Uh, I was brought up in a system, a religious system that's pr pretty like exact. And my dad was pretty authoritative. So I didn't, uh, I didn't go with either of those <laughs> two okay. things. And so I just took off, believed that rebellion was freedom and, uh, and went for it wholeheartedly as I do most things. And then found that instead of leading me to freedom, it actually led me into smaller and smaller and smaller life and places until finally I was in a holding cell in downtown Toronto, actually, underneath the basement of City Hall here. And uh, spent about three months at a prison, remanded there. Um, I did not know that, Daniel. I, my, my admiration for you has gone through the ceiling. <laughs> Well, that's, that is, I'll think find that's some more cool. dirt, Nikki. There's more there. <laughs> no, yeah. uh, that's amazing. So that you, I mean, so I mean, what a what, a, I mean, what is amazing what you have achieved from that. You know that, and what what did you learn from that experience? Well, that's when I encountered Jesus. So again, this is history repeating itself. It's what I would call the unrelenting grace and love of God, like a God who refuses to give up. Yeah. And uh, I'm underneath that prison cell. I've been estranged from my family. I've stolen a bunch of things from them and was un, uh, unsafe to be around and had been in and out of various prison uh, police things over and over again. And I, I had pretty much given up. Uh, I was dead inside. I was addicted to drugs. So I wasn't really even feeling anything at all. So when did and, the drugs uh, start? How when how old were you when that start the drugs? I started that when I was like twelve. Um. I stole my first car when I was ten. Daniel, you've and, got a real story. You got a, right. How did I not know I, this before? <laughs> I was too young to go to juvenile court. I had to go to family court when I stole my first car because I was too oh young to be tried goodness. as a juvie. Yeah, I just thought you were like this Salvation Army pure. Pure as driven oh. snow from the word go. I know you had this past. And what did you learn? Yeah. Through, what did you learn through all of that? Well, what? so this Salvation Army officer, again, went out of her way to get in the way. She worked at the headquarters just down the street. And she came to visit me. She knew me from my parents' uh, church work. And she came in to see me. No one else could get in there. You know, it's like the power of the super suit, I call it, the Salvation Army uniform. And so she came in to, to visit me at the prison. I remember thinking to myself, like, oh, brother, you know, here comes the Salvation Army. And uh, she came into the cell and I was bracing myself for some sort of lecture or, you know, like, what are you doing with your life? And uh, she just handed me a lawyer's card. And then she just wrapped her arms around me and she whispered in my ear, I love you. Oh. And then she left. Now I didn't receive, I, I even shouted out after her, you know, you didn't even bring me a smoke. You know, I was completely ungrateful, couldn't care oh. less, totally together. And the door shut behind me. I was all by myself in this holding cell. And then I had this full on open vision of Jesus. 
Wow. Just Jesus showed up in my, in my jail cell mm -hmm. and did the exact same thing, wrapped his arms around me, whispered in my ear, I love you. And that's when I say that uh, a light came on, like quite mm -hmm. literally um, on the inside of me. Like I awakened almost from a dream. I felt like I had been dreaming. And I, I said to my, I can't tell you exactly what I said, but I said to myself like, oh, wow, like I'm in jail. This probably isn't good. And, uh, and then started to begin a process of healing. And uh, my mother says, I never changed speeds. I just changed direction. Um, and just kind of, yeah, a, a life of trying to get out of addiction and the grip of oppression in my own life. And then uh, trying to get involved in whatever God invited me to, to participate in. Amazing. And I mean, there's that clear that that drive was in you right from the start. Right. That's right. It was going to lead me one place or another. <laughs> it's right. amazing. And, then, I'm, and I mean, you've been such an advocate for justice issues all the way through. And I guess, I mean, the Salvation Army, I mean, that's, an, I love the Salvation Army. It's an amazing organization. What did you learn from the Salvation Army? Yeah, you know, it's really fascinating, but so many things. I mean, I learned that it's never too late. It's never too hard for God. You know, yeah. I mean, you just you just don't have to sift long through Salvation Army participants or people who belong to the Salvation Army to find just these like incredible miracle after miracle yeah. after miracle stories of God changing people's lives. Uh, I learned, you know, the the idea of pouring it all out on a on a hard bet. You know, the Salvation yeah. Army are great betters for people who don't gamble. They gamble with their resources a lot, so they place mm -hmm. a lot of resources on people who are a gamble. And uh, I, I learned that that's a kingdom principle. You know, yeah. I learned that God wants people to pour out resources on the gamble, you know, on the, on the, uh, the I don't know if this is going to work out, but it's worth everything I've got to see. Um, I love that. I love, you know, some of the early stories of the Salvation Army that captured my imagination that I just was kind of running after to catch up, you know, to some of those crazy early stories like the Salvation Army invaded a Japanese brothel system and shut it down in 1902 oh, with big wow. bass drums and all nights of prayer, you know, just crazy oh. uh, stories that I just was like, yeah, let's do that again. You know, um, William yeah. Booth used to tell people that if you wanted to demonstrate the power of God, you would go to the darkest place and shine mm -hmm. a light there. And uh, I love that as a strategy. I think it's still something that I try to do. Yeah, and you really have done. I mean, taking on sexual abuse, you know, in a massive way through your organisations and through your life. But I'd say a little bit about how that also because that was I love that that story about how that all started for you. My story takes me into uh, brothels and things, trying to get into uh, you know indoor prostitution to just show up to people who are virtually invisible, which is you know how great oppression happens. The first stage of all injustice is that we choose not to see it. So I always try to go like, how do we choose to see it? That's like posture number one. We don't want yeah. to see it for a whole bunch of good reasons, but how do we choose to see? And so uh, it's a long story about a grandma and some cupcakes in Australia, but uh, which is also a really fun story, but really taught me that you can just show up. Like you can just go yeah. knock on a door and say yeah. like, I want to be present here. And so I made unlikely friends with this uh, madame of a brothel in Edmonton, Canada, and uh, she was really jaded, like hardest woman I've ever met, actually. And uh, I was asking her one day, you know, why do you do with this with your life? Because you are a really capable, strong, amazing yeah. business person, like all the things. Why are you doing this? 
And she took me in the back room and she just shared with me, like when I was 11 years old, I had been raped by my dad for the last time. And I Mm -hmm. ran away from home and I walked up this very street with this brothels on and a truck pulled over and a man uh, picked me up and said, I'll give you a place to stay tonight if you have sex with me. And she said, I turned my first trick. I I cried the whole night. I cried the whole next night. I cried the whole next night. And she said, when I got done crying, I did the best I could with what I'd been given. And here I am now, you know, she had owns three brothels and, and then she looked at me and her eyes filled with tears. So I knew like something was going on. She just looked at me and said, where were you when I was 11? And Nikki, what happened to me in the moment, I mean, it's bad enough that that's her story, but what happened to me in that moment that was so profound is that it was like I Rolodexed through all the stories, like hundreds of stories that I had heard that were exactly the same. Like, where were you when I was 11? And I realized even in that moment that I would trade everything I could to go back in time and be there when she was 11. Like what I wanted to do more than anything else was just like pause this moment, Dr. Who it back to, (laughs) and stop the trajectory of the violence and the sexual abuse that was going to be her normal and then be perpetuated, you know? And so I just really felt like that was a calling that God was saying, you know, you can't be there for her when she's 11, but you now have heard this message loud and clear. You want to stop human trafficking. You want to stop the trajectory of oppression and violence, stop it early. And uh, I launched with a friend of mine, Noemi Chavez in Long Beach, um, a prevention strategy, which I'm really believing that churches will use and run and just like use it as a way to get there first and uh, stop uh, human trafficking. I think it's, it's time. But that that's brave. That's the, um, um, brave global brave global yeah. and just say a bit about that because what you're teaching uh young women is is self-defense basically isn't it well right. we're, yeah we're doing a few things one is we think the church is the hope of the world um so we're trying to mobilize the church to partner with the community to end trafficking so there's kind of three pillars of brave the first one is to say we see you and you matter So the first thing a church would do if they were going to participate in Brave Global is do like a quick research on where the vulnerable girls are in their district. And this is what's been so exciting is a lot of churches will go, I had no idea. Like there are six group homes in our region. You know, we had no idea. And that's part of that perpetuating oppression is to not see it. So to look for where the vulnerable girls are and then to say to them, you matter. Like we're going to actually put you at the front of things, not at the back of things. And then it's to say, we believe in you and you can do it. It's an empowering message, which is ultimately the message of the gospel. That's what makes it so good news, right? Is it's about empowerment. It's about empowering people to be who God wants them to be. So that's an empowering. We do that through a conference, uh, usually like an event, uh, but we've been doing it virtually, been doing it online. We've been doing through through small groups, different strategies. But basically it's to say, we see something in you that you might not have seen yourself, which is value. <laughs> So we see this image of God in you. Like we think you were designed on purpose, not by accident. And we know that you've heard the statistics and you're living this life where people have told you that 86% of you won't make it. But we actually have a message that we believe that you can make it, (laughs) that we believe in you and we see you for you, you, who you really truly are. I call it like a pre-evangelism strategy. It's not like pure gospel in the sense that we're not making because we're really trying not to re-exploit people again or to use girls for our own benefit. 
but it is like a pre-gospel strategy that this word before the word, right? That you matter, that you, you're, you have value intrinsically inside of you and that you can do it. That's part of what it means to introduce people to good news. And then it's the, you're not alone. We can do this together. And that's where we ask churches to be these places of inclusion and belonging. Uh, and that what everybody ultimately needs is a family, a place to belong, of course. And you see the threads in my own story coming through here yeah. of my excluded parents being included in a tribal family that now we're in this thing together and that that uh, was so instrumental in my life. But everybody needs this. And this is Isaiah, of course, coming true, isn't it? That God puts the lonely in families. That's what the gospel does. So that's kind of the strategy. And uh, one of the elements that happens at every empowerment conference for Brave is a self-defense. Um, and, you know, one of the, the teachers that we use a lot is a woman named Kelly Kelly. She's an MMA fighter. She works a lot in the Congo with women uh, who are victims of rape and teaching them sort of how to protect themselves. But she shared for the first time at a Brave conference that about her own sexual abuse history. She was sexually abused when she was about 10. This is one in three girls, by the way. So this is so common. One in 10 uh, it, at, at the age of 10. And she said she never even spoke to another living human being about it until 10 years later. And when she was in her self-defense classes, she learned that your first form of self-defense is verbal. It's not yeah. physical. Your first, the first thing you do, you shout fire or help, or you make as much noise as you possibly can. That's true for a bear attack, by the way, as well. So anyway, um, and that's what you do. And she said she suddenly realized as she was sharing that, she was giving phrases for these girls to repeat after her, you know, like, stop touching me. I'm uncomfortable right now. Somebody help me. You know, she doesn't want this. All these sort of phrases that you can... Uh, say, as she was sharing it, I just all of a sudden, all the, the, the things started to, to click for me too, you know, that women and girls and young people who can't speak, you know, who are, who have, who have, whose voices have been silenced. Um, mm. That's actually, that's how oppression wins, right? That's why something like the Me Too movement is so mm. powerful and so good. Because if all it is, is women finding their voices or girls or kids finding their it also made a lot of sense to me when Jesus raises that young boy from the dead in Luke's gospel, and then he gives him back to his mother and he begins to speak. That's what the scripture says. He begins to speak, to use his voice. Uh, there's something so profound about life coming from people finding their own voices. Yeah. And you've been a big advocate of uh, the Me Too movement. And, but it's so pervasive, isn't it? How, how are we as a society to change this? I mean, sex abuse has been everywhere it's been in the church it's been in schools it's been in the sporting world it's like everywhere how how are we to change our like our culture our world yeah i mean this is where being a christian should be so helpful <laughs> you know like this is where we don't have to be afraid because we have someone we have jesus who gave us another way of being human i mean he showed us in a you know, in the world in which he lived, which was so much more infused with misogyny and patriotism, the way that he treated women and interacted with women and empowered women and like partnered with, I mean, it is, I mean, I don't think we really fully grasp just how radical of a character Jesus is in the flesh, you know, just as a leader in the flesh yeah. and that we have the Holy Spirit to help us with these things. So we don't have to be afraid of things like truth, yeah. you know, with, that's not our Christian, like Christians aren't like, let's, 
quiet down the truth uh, so that we can have some perception that's not true. No, we're truth seekers. The truth sets us free, right? Mm -hmm. So I think if we could be the people that aren't afraid of the truth and to know that that truth, to let that stuff out is what it means to heal, to move towards it is what it means to properly grieve for the situation um, that things are in right now. But then also to get uh, to work, to roll our hope sleeves up and get our hands dirty with doing the work of repairing relationships and brokenness of trust. And, you know, men who will model being much more like Jesus than like other leaders of the day. Uh, we just need, we need more and more people who are committed uh, to truth and to Jesus and who are not afraid. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, sexual abuse is one of the things that, I mean, it, of course it affects men as, as well as women, but predominantly, if you look at the statistics, it's, it's women who've been subject to, sexual abuse but also women have been just disempowered i haven't been given the roles and i another another area where you uh, one of your um uh, organizations that you started is women speakers collective um and just say a little bit ab about this because obviously you're a phenomenal communicator and speaker but but you you have you have kind of enabled so many women through this organization to develop speaking skills and um to equalize the platform. Yeah, ideally, you know, in in let's let's keep the let's keep the dream alive, Nikki, and believe yeah. that we're working towards this. But you know, whenever there's a deficit, of course, you're not working from an equal level, right? You're working from a yeah. deficit, both internally and externally. So I think there's internal systems that women have been taught and groomed, and culture has told women, especially Christian culture. Uh, that they are not um, able to use their voice or not welcome to use their voices in public forums, especially teaching men. So you have like a theology and a practice that has actually been detrimental for women discovering and using their gifts, especially when it comes to communicating uh, outside of just women's uh, things. So this is a really interesting, you know, one of the things I do when I gather women at a boot camp, which is like a training program that I run is we just have the solidarity exercise. And what we'll do is just have women stand if they have felt these things. And we run through this list of things. Like, have you ever felt, have you ever been told you shouldn't speak? You yeah. know, and like 80% of the room stands up. And this is 2020. Huh. <laughs> this is 2020. And these are like strong women who are already at a training camp to use, like they're already yeah. speaking. And, uh, and they'll stand up and then I'll say, you know, we'll ask the next question. You know, have you ever been theologically challenged for speaking in church, you know, and like half the room stands up. And then you start to realize when other people would talk to me to say, I would say like, where are the women? Why aren't they communicating here? Why aren't there more women here? Like this doesn't reflect the church very well. It doesn't reflect leadership very well. And uh, leaders will say to me, like, we don't know where they are. We can't find them. Um, and then also when we ask them, they won't do it. Yeah. So those were sort of some of the responses. Yeah. And so I was thinking, that's fascinating. When I did my research for my book, uh, Better Together, I found this research that says that the most confident a woman will be in her life is at age nine. Huh. And that huh. after age nine, so this is fascinating, right? Because yeah. as soon as a woman hit like age nine, then we're talking puberty, which does a number on a woman's self-esteem body-wise. And then you hit high school, which does a number on a woman's self-esteem in yeah. terms of social and then you just hit like mainstream culture, which is like highly sexualizing of women, like regular abuse, like one in three women sexually harassed in her lifetime. So 
you are thinking about a woman just getting to the place where she's willing to use her voice. You think of the things she has to get through and get yeah. uh, to, to get just to that place. And I think for me, it's always just such a sobering exercise to do together because that's the other thing that, that how oppression works is it, it singles people out. So they're by themselves. So they feel like they're the only one. So to have a collection, to have people say, no, yeah. no, no, we're all in this together. We've all felt this. We've all heard this. We've all had pushback. And yet we're willing to listen to God and ask him to fill us with the good news that we are, you know, capable and we are given the gift and that it's our job to use this gift for his glory. So there's a powerful exercise that happens collectively in trying to trade. So my, my ideal is that it won't stick around forever. The women speaker collective. I'd love, I'd love for it to be totally unnecessary mm -hmm. and that women just are part of the mainstream of communicators uh, everywhere. But the idea think, was to just solve the gap. You know, what is causing the gap? How yeah. can we just start solving that gap? And I, do you think it is getting better? And it, and so, I mean, because my perception is it's getting better, but we're not there yet. And how how do we how do we close that? What are the things that need to be done now to uh, to close that gap? Well, you know, I think one of the things that's helping uh, us get it better is that we're having to rethink the way we do everything right now. So, like, yeah. social media sure has helped. You know, some yeah. of the most influential social media communicators are female, which I think is yeah. really interesting because some of those you know, normal trajectories or platforms have been closed. And it's like, God just is like, okay, fine, I'll open up another platform. So I think that's interesting to pay attention to. Uh, kind of, it reminds me of John Wesley, you know, who wanted to speak at an Anglican church and the Anglicans are like, no. So he's like, well, the field will do, you know, and then thus this open air thing. And he got to more people than ever could have, a uh, church ever could have got to. So I feel like in some ways, social media is kind of one of those moments of another platform. And it's a yeah. real leveling of the playing field yes. in many ways too. So yeah. I feel like there's a lot of hope there. I think yeah. maybe we have to stop trying to change the old and just do the the kingdom uber new. So maybe that's one of the ways. Uh, but I also think nothing changes without intention. Yeah. Nothing changes without intention. And I would also say that if we're really going to change things to be normal, you have to overemphasize them for a little while. Yeah. So I know I've had some pushback from men uh, who have said, but wait a minute, you know, this feels unfair. You know, if we're going to get real specific about like, we need to start having women, we need to identify women, we need to train women. And I'll say to people a lot of the times, you will need to do all those things because women will not put their hand up because they've been told not to. They have an yeah. internal dialogue and an external system that have been working against them. So you're going to have to, you know, go out of your way to get in the way to make this work. And, um, and it's going to feel unfair in some ways, but um, I often liken it to correcting a foot, you know, when, it, yeah. when a baby is born and the foot is facing the wrong direction. So like the body of Christ, I think this is one of those things, our foot's facing the wrong direction in this regard. So the doctor puts a brace on the foot, but not to correct it, not to the center, but to overextend it for a little while. So those muscles can grow in that direction. And then they take the brace off the foot. So the foot is facing the right direction. So I think we actually have to over correct for a little bit in order to bring a, a proper correction. Yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? I mean, because it, it's not just in the church. It's like, so I had this conversation with my sister 
because uh, my sister had her 67th birthday uh, this week and I rang her just to say happy birthday. And I was just talking about, she's a barrister, so she's a QC, and you know, uh, uh, like Queen's Council. Um, yeah. Um, she, I mean, she, it's hard to be more successful than my sister is right now <laughs> in the legal profession. But right. when, she, when she qualified as a barrister, she could not find a set of chambers who would take her. And she wow. squatted, which meant, you know, she just basically refused to move from her chambers for six years. And this set of chambers just would not take her. Um, And eventually she went to a very low down set of chambers and then she climbed her way up the legal profession and moved from chambers to chambers. And now she's in a fantastic set of chambers. She is hugely, hugely um, successful. She's written law books. She's like, um, but I was so interested. So so she told me, because I said, you know, what does that set of chambers think now about... In fact, they offered her, years later, they tried to recruit her back. And by that stage, she had a much better place to go. And she said that, do you know, that there were three women who were turned down by that set of chambers. Two of them are high court judges. And she's far more successful than those two. So, but it's so interesting. They, it was misogyny. So this is in the legal profession. Um, yes. And so it's like, and this is, this is not that long ago. So this is like, 30 years ago, I guess, a bit more than that, uh, maybe yeah. 35 years ago. So it's, it's everywhere. So let you know, broaden this to, to leadership. It's like not just speaking, but le- how, how are we to, to change the way, not just in the church, but generally in society, but I guess specifically in the church as well. How, do, how, how are we to, to redress this balance? Well, I think becoming aware of it is one thing. And this is interesting. I use a little, just for life in general and for change in general, I use this little recipe that we use at Amplify Peace, which is about making peace, which I think this is making relationships right. You know, right relationships is peacemaking at its core. And I would say is the gospel also at its core. But um, I use these three little things that seem simple, but they actually always challenge me and can be so helpful. The first thing is to listen to voices you don't normally hear. This is challenge number one, which in this day and age is even harder, even though we have all the information because we have all these algorithms that just keep us in echo chambers, right? So we keep, we're stuck in these places where all we hear is the same thing over and over again. So if you can listen to voices that you don't normally hear, that's going to help you uh, move. It's going to help with your perspective. It's going to help with everything. When it comes to women, I'll often challenge leadership teams. Have a look around. If everybody around your leadership table is the same as you, you're missing you're yeah. missing people and you don't even know you're missing people. And this happens with women a lot. You'll get a lot of guys around a table and they're all for women and they all like women and they're all like, you know, convinced women should lead, but when there's no women around the table. Yeah. So then you think, okay, why aren't they there? You'll never know <laughs> unless you go find them and ask them. Mm-hmm. And so HSBC has a great story about this, how they actually kept losing all their senior managers yeah. and then they would have to retrain all these other Finally, they just had a conversation to say, like, can we go find those people we lost and say, why did we lose you? And when they went to find them, they found out they were all females and they lost them because of work hours and the rigidity. There was no flexibility in the workplace. They were all becoming new parents, mothers, and they didn't want to sacrifice, you know, that time and all this kind of stuff. And so then they actually went to like number two, which is learn that there are new ways of doing things and new ways of approaching problems. So you listen to voices you don't normally hear you learn ways of doing things differently. So HSBC started to realize, oh, bank hours aren't fixed. 
Like maybe yeah. a nine to five bank job isn't actually good even for our customers. Like maybe there's other ways. And so they, they learn new ways of doing it. And then the third thing is to live, to implement those uh, things you're learning. And then basically just keep repeating that process over and over again. Listen to voices that you're not normally hearing, learn something new, and then implement those changes. And then HSBC, funny enough, I mean, they went to like number one company to work for. Diversity becomes a strength of their organization. They regularly host uh, women bankers, you know, uh, conferences. And that's what I actually found myself accidentally at one of those conferences speaking. (laughs) And I was like, what's going on here? And that's how I found out that story. But just the uh, the incredible changes, because what they realized is that this wasn't just out of the goodness of their heart. You know, HSBC isn't just like a good company that they want to do the right thing. They realized that in harnessing the diversity, there was a, it was a means by which they actually harness their business for the world. It was lucrative. I mean, this is a good idea. I mean, everybody in business, Goldman Sachs, HSBC, is like women, you know, and harnessing the power of women. You want to end global poverty, ask the UN what their number one millennial development goal that will do all of the things yeah. that they hope to do. It'll be the empowerment of women. Mm-hmm. So it's a very fascinating thing that the very thing the gospel is about is the very thing that actually would make us better businesses, better churches, better leaders if we led together. Uh, one, of the, one of the many things I love about you, Danielle, is that you, you're, you're absolutely passionate about pushing women's rights but it's there's no hint of any kind of dislike of men or um you know you're, you've got three sons um and I, I i i think i heard what you what you say to them each night just say what you what you say to your boys yeah uh, like so we yes yeah, yeah we go through this little routine ever since they could even just like start talking and i'll say to moses specifically you know moses who made you you know, Moses just looks at me with this big smile and he says, God made me. And I'll say, yeah, honey, he sure did. And how did he make you? And he says, he made me good. Yeah. <laughs> and it's so, you know, what a powerful truth that every single person created. I mean, this is right. This is still amazing news that everyone yeah. created is created in the image of the goodness of God. Yeah. And that, uh, you know, that the attempts of the world to try to cover that over and distort that. And even to make us believe that we are somehow intrinsically bad or unworthy uh, are just that those are just uh, lies and oppression of the enemy that God wants to read us to rediscover who it is he's created us to be. Yeah. yeah. It's like, I mean, it's like the church has so emphasized the fall that we're all broken, which we are and sinful, et cetera, et cetera. But what it hasn't emphasized is creation. That like what you're emphasizing to Moses is creation. That you're yes. made in the image of God. You're you're made good, and you're yes. redeemed by Jesus. You know you're like, um, yes. and you've got glorification ahead of you. It's like all the positive doctrines, and the church has tended to focus on no, you're a sinner and you're terrible. Um, yeah, and then, I always like to say like sin doesn't have the first word, and it doesn't even have the last word. Yeah, yeah. right. It's just the middle word. Yeah. So uh, yeah, yeah, Jesus. It, Jesus always has the first and last word, right? Always. Goodness, grace. It always has the first and last word. Yeah. yeah. But particularly you're speaking to your boys, you're speaking to men, and you're not yes. saying to them, you know, men are terrible. And uh, it's like, because it's so hard to get that balance in the world. You either get people who sort of hate one or hate the other. It's like, but you love both. And that's Jesus. 
Yeah. And I mean, that's the wisdom of God putting me in a family of men, right? For sure. Yeah. Because I have had to resist it because the temptation is so, you know, especially when you're hearing story after story after story. So like in my Better Together book, I talk about one particular day and just driving home after listening to another story and watching these cars pull up to, you know, pick up these exploited women and just like with minivans and police officers and teacher, I mean, you know, it's just like, ah, and I remember driving home and thinking to myself, like, are there any good men left in this world? Mm -hmm. Just like wanting to just like, just really weeping even just going like, is this really it? This is all men can do, you know? And then I got to my front door and when I opened my front door, like one of my boys just came running and gave me a big bear hug and just said, mom, I'm so glad you're home. And then I just realized, and of course I'm married to a really good man. So that helps me a lot, but I just realized in the moment, even as he hugged me, just some of that, like, you know, angst and fear melting away because as a mother, I refuse to believe that my kids are destined to badness. I refuse to believe that my kids are destined to be abusers or harassers or even jerks towards women. And so there's something, you know, that motherly resolve, which of course is the same thing. God, he refuses to believe that his children can't be fully redeemed. He refuses to believe that this is any problem is insurmountable uh, and that grace can't conquer it and help us and restore us to what we were originally intended to be. So I think that sure has helped. Absolutely. <laughs> so, I mean, gender uh, justice, uh, gender equality is a, a clearly a passion, but equally racial justice, and uh, which again is is right at the forefront of um, um, what the Holy Spirit seems to be raising up in in the church, of course, in the world as well. But um, but again, you're at the forefront of that, and just say a little bit about that and why you feel so strongly about that. Well, look, I think that, I mean, I'm so excited about this moment in history because I yeah. think God, whenever God amplifies something, you know, which he did with anti-trafficking, by the way, about 20 years ago, I don't yeah. know if you remember, but it was just like, yeah. it was everywhere yeah. you looked. It was just because God's like got his finger on it saying like, this yeah. is a thing and yeah. we need to pay attention to this thing. And here's the good news because we're Christians. We don't have to do this out of fear, right? We get to do this out of, well, if God's pointed it out, it means there's grace, it's time. There's something that he wants to do on the earth yeah. right now. And this is a part of it. And I think, you know, unity at its heart is a celebration of diversity, right? Yeah. We know this from the Gospels. We know this from the book of Revelation that paints this picture of the ultimate, you know, expression of the kingdom of God. And it is a diverse, so diverse that the author says he can't even number it. Yeah. So we're this celebration of um, unity as a celebration of diversity. The only way that's going to happen is if we identify where it's not. Yeah. Like, where is that not? And of course, you know, one of the great tragedies is that it's not in most of our churches. It's not in most of our leadership. Gap, it's not in most of our. So I think if we start with the future, this is one of my favorite strategies I learned from a guy named Sami Awad, who's a Palestinian activist. So whenever I feel like, oh, weary in the work, I always think of Sami trying to make peace in the Middle East. And I think, OK, yeah. I can do it. But Sammy said that what he started to do was he started to actually work with people who had experienced like generations of trauma and violence and fear and suspicion with, of each other. And he said, normally what movements do to get momentum is they reach backwards to find some good news and they push it forward to create momentum. But he said, the more they looked backwards in Middle Eastern history, the more they just came up with more offenses. You know, there was no... So he said he stopped that and he actually just would gather with these people from different backgrounds, Palestinian Christians, Muslims, Jews, um, and they would have these visioning exercises where they would start to vision their best future. 
Like they would start to just, he'd say like, I want you on the porch of your house at the end of your life and tell me what you see if this works out the way that your best hopes take you. And one by one, they would share these incredible like visions that they had of like their children being fed and like living their lives that they were called to do of being able to celebrate their gifts of like not having any violence, you know, actually having freedom from conflict and having enough to eat and the love between them. And as they shared their visions of this perfect future, they started realizing they all had the same vision for the future. So even though they disagreed on all kinds of things in their past, they actually agreed on what it was that they wanted. And he said that became a catalyst for momentum to work together and to build together a world that we want to see happen now. And this is what the church is supposed to do, right? This is what the gospel is supposed to do is help us to imagine a better world. If you can start to imagine the better world, then we can get to work at trying to get there together. And this is what's so exciting about being a Christian right now. It's because, I mean, we literally have in the person of Jesus, someone who has demonstrated what reconciliation is, who has celebrated diversity in the way that he lived in faith and background and gender and culture. I mean, all of the things that Jesus transcended in his earthly ministry. And then, of course, we have this picture of an idealized picture, like where we're headed I mean, if anybody could do this without being afraid and without being defensive and without being like, it should be us. Like, we're like, woohoo, like, bring it on. We got to we got to work towards this idealized future. But that I mean, that takes courage because, um, you know, again, another thing I admire about you've got huge courage because you've taken on these issues and taking on these issues. And there are a lot of people out there who who don't believe in in equality uh, for women and who for find reasons to resist racial... I mean, they wouldn't think see it as that, but they'll find reasons to criticise any kind of movement towards um, uh, racial diversity. So they'll find reasons. And you must have had a lot of uh, that opposition and stuff. Yeah, and I often... I mean, I think, what, I think what it is is that we have really been dominated by a culture of fear, And I learned early on, which I'm so grateful for, that fear is a currency of oppression. Mm. I actually learned this by studying the book of Exodus, because I always knew that fear is what kept people oppressed. Yeah. But what I didn't realize till I read Exodus chapter one is that because Pharaoh was afraid of the Jews, he oppressed them. So then I realized that actually, and this has also made a lot of sense that Jesus never stopped saying, do not be afraid. Yes. And every time God encounters humanity, he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be. It's like, literally, if you could just describe the Bible, it would be like, don't be afraid. Um, And so I felt, I realized that fear, if you're making decisions based on fear, or you're even not doing things out of fear. So if you're being motivated by fear, you will either be oppressed or you'll be an oppressor. Yeah. So to stop the oppression, both inside and out, requires us to stop being afraid. And I think that lesson, I mean, because it's not like I learned it and now I'm good. It's like fear is like the culture. It's the the water we're swimming in. This is a culture of fear. There's no question about just watch the news. Fear sells, fear motivates, fear. So if we can be a people that aren't afraid, you know, I think this is maybe one of the most countercultural Uh, things we can do with our lives right now as the church is to just not be afraid and to be not be driven by fear or motivated by fear in any of the decisions that we do. And how do you overcome fear in your own life? Yeah, there's only one way to overcome fear that I have discovered in my own life. And it's the presence of Jesus. Yeah. 
that's it the presence of god like the presence of love that's what the scripture says casts out fear and not like as some sort of like religious like yeah i can't just say it i have to identify the fear i have to invite jesus into the fear and then i have to watch with him as that fear begins to dissipate so it's a confrontation of fear, not a denial of fear, because that's the temptation, right? As Christians, as we just deny the fear as though if we say it loud enough, we won't be. Uh, but no, it's to identify this is where I'm afraid. And then it's to invite Jesus into right into that spot to do it with you uh, in the presence of love, the presence of grace, the presence of God is what allows fear to lose its grip on my mind and my life and my church and, you know, the way that we do things. Yeah. And I guess um, fear is one thing that, that challenges us. The other is uh, just exhaustion uh, and fatigue um, when, yeah. you're, when you're fighting these battles. I mean, you're fighting so many battles, um, you know, yeah. on so many different fronts. Um, and you've been doing it um, courageously. Um, how, how do you, how, and I think a lot of people right now with COVID-19 and isolation and are feeling like, um, the first six months, they're running on adrenaline and like it was, yeah, 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 this is going to be again. Oh, my, now it's going to be another. Uh, now, oh, I'm exhausted. How, how do you deal with that? How do, you, how do you get patterns in your life to cope with that kind of exhaustion? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I am experimenting even as we speak with this very thing. You know, I mean, I think everyone's feeling that what we call surge depletion, right, where we've just depleted all the resources of our emotional capacity. So here we are at empty. Um, I think for me, I just stick to some patterns, some rhythms for my daily experience of God. And this was a also a big awakening for me. I'm so glad that even within, I was doing Christian ministry and leadership and grassroots stuff. And I was watching so many friends uh, burn out, you know, and just like not be able to sustain the fight. And a, a bunch of us, we actually watched a friend of ours burn and crash and burn. And we just were like, what happened? And we got together and we asked ourselves what happened. And, and then we asked ourselves how we were doing, you know, are we really living a daily yeah. life with Jesus, or is just this a Christian ministry? Like, am I just a Christian leader and I'm just doing the same thing everyone else is doing, but like, I read my Bible every day, but like, am I, and we actually created this thing called infinitum life. So it's a posture shift. I call it every day. I pray this daily prayer and I posture my life and I ask Jesus to be the center today. That's it. And all my day, my day is not measured by like how this last 25 years have gone or anything like that. Today is just, is Jesus alive and leading and at the center of my life today. That's it. That's all I'm concerned with. And I feel like that has been one of the most liberating and invigorating uh, ways. It's not always, it's not always fancy. It doesn't always feel good, but it's literally like just a little posture shift every day where I, I use my body. <clears throat> so I just hold up my hands and I say like, this life's too hard for me. This day's too hard for me. Like, I don't have what it takes and so I'm just like, over to you, God, this belongs to you. I'm joining you. I'm yeah, joining. I do this with my kids too, when they go into school. And then I hold my hands out open. And this was one of the, this was a game changer for me, Nikki, that generosity, I used to think was just giving more. And then I realized that generosity is reciprocal. Yeah. That, that it's freely receiving as good as I freely give. That's it. And I'm, I'm a conduit. I'm receiving right, right now. Yeah. <laughs> So then I just say today, I just open my hands and I say, God, you know what I need today? I need patience. I need yeah. kindness. I need forgiveness. 
I need grace. I run out of patience by 8 a.m. because I got three boys. I need patience today. <laughs> like I need kindness and not just I need it. Like I need it. I need to be kind to myself. I need to be generous to myself. I need to be. And I ask for what I need. Yeah. And you know what's fascinating? All the things that I need, I have inexhaustible, like God has all of it and more, you know, like he's like, you need mercy. I top that up every single day, right? <laughs> so then I just keep my hands open and I say everything that I've so freely received from you, I am going to freely give today. That's it. It's not that. And then my last posture, just the third one is a posture of mission. And I open my hands and I imagine myself like the, the father in the prodigal story of the father. And I just say, my life is open. My life is open to the yeah. needs of the world. Like yeah. I refuse to stay closed yeah. and my life is postured to others, uh, both those nearest to me, but also those farthest away. Uh, and you're welcome here. Like this, this life is a welcome zone for you. And, and that's my daily prayer and practice. And I do this with some friends. So we get together. So I'm not doing this by myself. And uh, it's been a game changer in both sustainable practices, but also just the way that I posture my day. It's so liberating. So you have all these projects. Well, just, just before we move on to what you're working on at the moment, which I want to ask you about, but um, another thing that you carry is peace. You, you like, you have a peaceful presence. The moment you arrived on the you know, I was like, oh, here comes peace. Um, um, and, uh, but you also, I mean, it's not just like that you have an, an inner peace, but you are, you're, you are passionate about bringing people together in um, reconciliation and harmony. And you have the, the, your um, amplified peace and particularly women uh, leaders in that movement. And uh, uh, just say a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, one of the fascinating things, again, in my research, I discovered it is that if women are involved in peacemaking, the, the peace that is made stays much, much longer. I'm not and, at all surprised. Yes, <laughs> and the peace advances, like the peace agenda advances. So, I mean, Rwanda is a country that's leading the way in this now, yeah. post-genocide. Yeah. And so, and then also in my own life, I think peacemaking is such a great lens that makes sense of the gospel. Like there is no other way that reconciliation can come apart from the cross. I mean, I can't find it. I can't find it anywhere all around the world. I've gone all like yeah. I've sat with, you know, people who live a reconciled life. There's no other way, but through the power of something greater than ourselves. And this is this peacemaking thing. And so getting, so even when we go, we'll go arrange these immersion trips where we learn together what it means to be peacemakers. And here's what's fascinating about it. So we'll go to like Israel and Palestine and we'll unlearn all the things that we thought we knew and we'll relearn. And what we'll learn is that this is more of a mess than we ever thought. And it turns out there aren't good guys and bad guys and we're not on the side of the good guys. It's like, ah, there's brokenness and there's a need for somebody to create an alternative way. But then we'll actually be able to go, okay, are there voices that you haven't heard from in your own neighborhood? Are there people that you've never met? Are there people you make assumptions about that you've never actually met? Like, are there? And so we've seen so much transformation in the way that people live. So we had one woman who came with us to Israel, Palestine, and just kind of unraveled and was like, how can people not hear these people's stories? And they're trapped behind this wall and nobody can. And then she went, she was on the bus. We were driving to the airport and she's like, wait a minute, there's a Muslim family that moved in on my street a year ago and I've never met them. 
Mm. I've talked about them. I've, you know what I mean? Like I've done all the things, but I've never actually met them because I've never gone out of my way to get in the way and really learn the story. So she got off, literally got off the plane from this trip and she went straight to the Muslim's uh, neighbor's house and knocked on the door and said, I am so sorry. I have not been here sooner, but I'm your neighbor. I'm thrilled you moved in and I'd like you to come for tea. Yeah, And that began to initiate this beautiful community movement of inclusivity and peacemaking. So that's the thing. It's not rocket science, but sometimes you have to go to the other side of the world <laughs> to, yeah. see, to see the problems over there before it's actually illuminated for your own life here. So that's what we do. We go to uh, Rwanda and Congo and Israel, Palestine and South Africa, as well as local immersion. So we take people on trips to like the reservations uh, the residential school system in North America. We hear from, you know, those sisters and brothers who've experienced that and talk about how we can live differently. It's it's really a beautiful, practical way of transforming our world. That's amazing. I mean, I one of the, uh, listening to Tim Tim Keller. I did this interview with Tim Keller yesterday. What was so interesting uh, was on the um, racial uh, issue. He said, "Don't read the books." hear the stories, listen to the stories. And I thought yes. that was so fascinating. Um, and that's what yes. you're saying, basically, go and don't read the books, hear the stories, listen to the people. I, but actually, it's, it's amazing. The fact that you're, you've just sort of talked about all the countries you're in, um, I mean, the pace of your life. And I love the way you say, you know, you're not after balance in your life. Um, <laughs> Just say what you yes. say about balance. I really like that. Yeah, I stopped aiming for balance. So I used to, I remember my mom actually was saying that when I got home from my first mission trip and started, you know, saying we don't need a new dish set because people are starving and la, 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 la. And she said to me, you know what you need in your life, Danielle, you need to find some balance. And then I started looking for it, you know, in the scriptures, I couldn't find it anywhere. And then I started <laughs> looking for it in the early church, you know, anybody who had done anything to change the world at all, I couldn't find it anywhere. And then I thought to myself, like, why are we looking for balance? Like, it's nowhere good. Um, the only place I could ever find balance was like on a magazine cover. <laughs> and I started also realizing like what we mean by balance is like everything held in perfect harmony with, you know, which we know that even in like a, a magazine cover is only one shot at a 2000. You know, if you look at the 2000 other shots they took, those weren't even perfectly balanced. So I started uh, just losing that word. I'm not looking for balance in my life, but I am looking for rhythms. I am yeah. looking for healthy rhythms. I am looking for God's invitation. I am looking to say yes to him. Yeah. Uh, and I am looking to grow in my capacity to say yeah. yes to him. So, but I did, you know, just that, I call it the balance myth. Let's just expose it for what it is. Nobody's living you know, a perfectly balanced life. It's a lot easier if you come over to my house to realize that I mean that because you'll see that I've let some things go. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but, so, I mean, you've got all these things, but you're now you're, you're working on some new things. Let's say about the new things that you're working, new book, or are you not yeah, happy well, to say it? There are some dreams. I feel like God has given me, especially this season, right? It's a real pivot season in some ways because a lot of the things I would be doing, I'm not. Uh, traveling's been off the, the table, which is great. It's been a really good season for me to just like stick at home and hang out and have some time where I don't have to yeah. unpack and repack a suitcase. I've enjoyed it a lot. And uh, just really feeling like there are a lot of things that we could do to change the world where we don't have to go anywhere at all. Yeah. And so one of those things is I, I'm working on a business, a new, a new social enterprise called IMBI, which is called In My Backyard. 
And it's a tiny house movement that is looking for people to have tiny houses in their own backyards to Hmm. extend the family of God and to invite people who would not be able to afford a house or who are at risk of homelessness um, to be part of a, a family of God. So we're just literally in the dreaming stage of this. But every time we get together to dream about this and we've just hashed out a meeting yesterday, it's like God is like, there's all this fire on it. I can just feel God wanting to shift some really essential things about what are what is family in terms of a kingdom perspective? How do we live this out? How do the ways that we live right in our own backyards, not across the, the ends of the earth, but right in our own backyards actually model the solutions and the kingdom coming to our own neighbors and friends. It's, it's going to be fun, Nikki. It's gonna be, it's so gonna that's the new project. What about the new book? What's that on? Again, new book is on this deep and wide idea. So I used to believe that you either had to be deep or you could be wide, but you couldn't be both. <laughs> so I either had to be a contemplative monk, you know, and <laughs> or I had to be an activist And in my life, of course, these things have been brought together. So I'm working on a book about how to live the deep and wide life and that those two things are not only uh, can go together, they're supposed to go together Mm -hmm. and that our depth should meet our width. And it's all, you know, Ephesians 3, it's a new tattoo as well on Ephesians 3, just this, you know, planted and rooted in the the, the soil of God's love, which then will enable us to, to see the height and the length and the depth of his love around the world. So that's what's coming up. Wow. Well, you definitely uh, demonstrate in your own life, deep and wide. And uh, I look forward personally to reading the book. And um, I'm sure that I will be inspired by it as I have been by listening to you uh, on this podcast. Uh, I can't thank you enough, Daniel, because um, you have been such an inspiration to us, to our church, and uh, to the world with all these books. And, and what an entrepreneur, what, a, what an example you are. And um, thank you so much for who you are and your family and uh, much love to you all. God bless. Thank you, Nikki. Well, from Nikki and the team, we want to say thank you to Danielle for taking the time to share with us. If you enjoyed today's episode, why don't you take a second to like, review, or share this podcast with a leader in your life who you think would benefit from conversations like these. Our next episode will feature Nikki's conversation with Tim Keller. We are really looking forward to sharing this interview with you. Tim is a best-selling author, the founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, and the chair of Redeemer City to City, which starts new churches in New York and other global cities. He has written some of the most popular Christian books like The Reason for God, The Meaning of Marriage, and Preaching, to name a few. We so look forward to releasing Nikki's conversation with Tim in just a couple weeks. Well, that's it from me. A big thank you for listening in this week, and we hope you're able to tune in for Tim Keller on November 22nd. Bye for now. Bye for now.